Amen. One of uh, the best parts about last week was we got to see a photo of Louie playing for the 85-pound Falcons. Does anybody remember that? Was anybody as encouraged by that as I was? Well, I didn't quite weigh 85 pounds until after I graduated from high school, so I, I didn't play for the 85-pound uh, Falcons. I just chose a different sport altogether. And the sport that I chose was tennis because you don't get hit in tennis, which is nice. And I love when I say that because people start looking at me like already there's people looking at me like, okay, so he wasn't an athlete. You know, I love that. I, just, you know, we take a bad rap as tennis players, but I promise we're more athletic than we look. Long distance is probably better for us than, you know, a hundred yard meter race. But we do have some athletic ability. Um, I, I started playing tennis, a huge part of my story, when I was two years old. Two. Like a lot of people are still trying to walk when they were two. Uh, I have, we had, there's like video footage of me playing tennis when I was two years old, which is amazing. And it was my entire life growing up from the time I could walk. All I ever wanted to do was to play this game. Uh, My dad uh, wasn't a tennis player. He was a football player. Uh, which might be part of the reason why I was a tennis player and not a football player, because all of his fingers go all different kinds of ways, and we just realized it would be better if I didn't play that sport. (laughs) My mom uh, was a cheerleader, which is amazing, but was not a tennis player. And somehow I fell in love with this sport early in life, and I decided this was me. This is what I was going to do. And it was really weird, because at a young age, I was making like big sacrifices, like elementary school, I was deciding I, I, wasn't, I was going to kind of forfeit the whole let's go do sleepovers at friends' houses and let's go to birthday parties and let's do all this deal. I kind of just said that's not the path I want to take. I, I'm determined and I'm focused on the goal that I have. And so I just practiced. I practiced before school. I practiced after school. I practiced late at night. I practiced early in the morning. I, took, I went to practice uh, straight from school on the bus. On Thursday or Friday, I would check out of school early, which was a mega benefit to playing tennis. And I would leave to go to wherever the tournament was that weekend. And I would come back on Sunday or Monday and gear up, practice for a couple more days and leave for the next weekend. And this was my life. There's a photo of me. I think I was about 13 years old. Uh, That's me. Not quite 85 pounds. I'll admit to it. But that was the first time I went to the U.S. Open in New York, which was amazing. And this, this just continued to fuel this dream that I had. And I got a little bit older. I went through elementary school, middle school. I got to high school, and I was having some success in the sport. And I got to my junior year, and I had played this tournament. There was a guy at the tournament who watched me play, and he approached me afterwards and said, Hey, why don't you come, um, why don't you come train at, at my tennis academy? Which was great because at the time I lived in Gainesville, Georgia. I don't know if there's anybody here from Gainesville, Georgia, uh, which is amazing. I love it. Not a lot of tennis players. There are a lot of farmers, but not a lot of tennis players up there. And so he said, hey, why don't you come to my tennis academies in Hilton Head Island? And I said, great. Uh, let, you know, it's going to take a little bit for me to figure that out. I'm going to have to leave school. I'm going to have to figure out how to raise the money to go there. And they offered me a scholarship, uh, this guy named Stan Smith, who some of you might know. Uh, some of you think he's just a shoe guy. But he, he was a, the number one tennis player in the world for a long time. He won Wimbledon. He won U.S. Open. And he said to me, why don't you come to my academy and train? And I was like, done. I'll, feel, I'll do whatever I have to do to get to be a part of that. And so I did it. And I was chasing this dream with every ounce of energy that I had for as long as I could possibly do it. 
And I, I got to this place where I was training, I was preparing, I, I got to uh, go, I was going to this tournament in Mobile, Alabama. So it was big time, you know. <laughs> Anybody ever done anything in Mobile, you know, that's like the prime time, just one step below the U.S. Open. <laughs> and I had got there, but I had put in so much work. And in the first match of that tournament on court 43, I can remember it like it was yesterday, I hit a forehand that I had hit hundreds of thousands of times in my life. And I could feel something happen in my shoulder and I could then no longer hold my racket. And I had to walk off the court, we had to go to the doctor, we had to get MRIs, we had to do the whole deal. And before you knew it, I was told, well, there's a tear and I went to this doctor. He said, you got some options. You can do therapy. It's not going to work. He's like, thanks for telling me that's an option. <laughs> or you can do surgery, which is going to put you out for eight months, and there's a chance you'll never get full range of motion back in your shoulder. So he said, I'll give you a, a couple minutes to think about it, and I'll come back in. And he came back in. I said, I guess, I guess the only option is surgery. And so we did that. And I'd spent eight months in rehab just holding on for dear life to a dream I had had since I could barely walk. It was like, you tell me what the rehab needs to look like and I'll double that. You tell me I need to do four hours, I'll do eight hours. You tell me I need to do this weight, I'll do five pounds more than that. You tell me the last guy that did whatever did this, then I'll come in and I'll do a little bit more than what he did because I was determined to accomplish my dreams for my life. I got to the place where I had rehabbed long enough, the doctors felt comfortable enough to release me to start practicing again. I got into that place, I played in my first tournament back, and the same thing happened in a different place of the same shoulder. And surgery had to happen all over again, leading to multiple surgeries and ultimately ending to the death of a dream. And I remember thinking in that season of life, I was 18, 19, 20 years old, and for some people, that sounds so trivial. It's like, okay, great, it's tennis, but it's the only thing I knew in life. And maybe if you ever had a dream die, you understand what it was like. And I can remember being in that place, and I was so angry at everybody. I was angry at every person that I came in contact with. Namely, I was angry at God. And my thinking my thinking went like this. If there is a God, and he's the same God that everybody told me about all the years of, my, of me growing up in church, if there is a God who loves me so much and he would let that happen to me, then I don't want that kind of God. I don't want anything to do with somebody who, would, who can control everything and would let me go through that. I don't want any part of that. And he just ripped me apart. And walking in today, I mean, we're talking about storms of life, and I don't know where you came from today. Some of you are coming in here today, and it's calm waters, and you're, you know, sailing on the pontoon boat, and everything's great, and that's incredible. And for some of us today, you barely got in here today. And the water's a little bit choppier for you, maybe, than for the person beside you. And maybe you're asking that same question, how could... How could God let something like this happen to me? If, if he's so good, if he's, if, he's, if he's this guy that everybody says he is, then how could this happen? And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to lean in today because I believe that God has a message for you. 
The way our pastor has said it multiple times, and I love this, it's, it's a sad reality, but it's life. He said everybody in here is either on the way into a storm, you just got out of a storm, or you're in a storm right now. And I believe that's true here in this gathering today. So I wanted to point us to a place in scripture where we can dig into that question. How could a God who loves us send us into storms? How could a God who cares about us purposefully send us into a storm? We're gonna use Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. If you have your scripture, you wanna turn there, it'll be on the screens as well, or you can follow along on your phone. Starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. When he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in a boat, in the boat, worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Amazing story that most of us have heard a lot of times, but I've always heard it uh, in, a, in a way that was maybe about what the text wasn't about. So most of the time when I hear this text, it's all about Peter. Peter got to walk on water, which is incredible, but it's interesting, the people who go in and put the subheaders above every section, it doesn't say Peter walked on the water. It says that Jesus walks on the water. And I wanna look at this story through the lens of Jesus, hoping and believing that it's gonna birth faith in the middle of whatever storm that you're walking in. So starting in verse 22, let's just unpack a little bit. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. That's interesting. So it doesn't seem like he uh, had a choice. It says immediately he made. Some translations say immediately he forced, which is interesting, them to get into the boat. So What's a little bit of a shift for us is, for, for most of us, we think when we're in a storm that we did something wrong. And that's just how a lot of life works. Like when you're a kid, okay, when you're a kid and you get into a storm, it usually means you're in the room and you either have received a spanking or you're about to receive one and you're just, you know, in some choppy water right now. I can remember that when I was little and I would do something wrong. I would punch one of my brothers or do something I shouldn't have done or take too many cookies before it was dinner time or whatever I chose to do. And sometimes you would get the seven word answer that was worse than any seven word answer 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? Wait till your dad gets home. And you would be like, oh, God, just kill me now. Go to your room and wait till your dad gets home. And you'd be up there and you're like, I am definitely in a storm right now. I'm thinking about jumping out of the window. And then you would just wait up there and eventually you'd hear it, you know, from about the top of the driveway. You'd hear the, the garage door start going up and you'd just be like, oh, man, I'm dead. I'm dead. But in that moment, you knew that there was something that caused you to be where you were. And what's interesting about this story is it says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat that eventually led them into a storm. So the disciples weren't in the storm out of disobedience or out of punishment. They were in the storm because of obedience. It's a little bit interesting, isn't it? So Jesus put them in a boat and sent them into the lake where the storms were soon to take over. And I think that's an interesting thought for all of us. It makes us think differently about storms. It makes you question things like Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You're like, well, what about that? What about that text when I'm in the middle of the storm? How's that, gonna, how's that working out? And I love Louis' illustration last week. He had these two paintings and his, his whole idea was that God paints on a canvas bigger than we can see or imagine. And a lot of times for us, we say God surely couldn't be working all things out for the good of those who love him, but we're thinking about what is good in our own eyes. And scripture says in Isaiah 55 that his thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. So his good isn't always our good. His definition of what's good for us isn't always our definition of what's good for us. And his definition of good for us is always better than our definition of good for our lives. He's painting on a canvas bigger than we can see or imagine. Let's keep reading a little bit. We get down to verse 24. It says, later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Jesus put them in a boat and then the wind was against it. Any of you ever done anything in life? You thought you were being obedient to what Jesus asked you to do and then you felt some wind? He felt like, man, he's the one that put me in this very boat. Shouldn't the wind be at my back, like propelling me to get across the lake in, oh, I don't know, let's say three seconds. But somehow he put me in the boat and now there's this headwind coming at me. And I think we have to understand this reality that just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not from God. Because sometimes to get you to what's best, he's going to have to take you through something that's hard so that you won't retreat to something that's comfortable. And I think that's what he's doing in this text. The wind was against them. And so many of us, we bail on what we feel like God has asked us to do because we start to feel the wind. This must not be God. Surely he wouldn't, make, surely he wouldn't do this to me. Surely he wouldn't put me through this. But I believe he might put you through it if what's on the other side is way better than what's on the side you're currently on. 
And then starting in verse 25, it says this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear, which is a crazy statement. Jesus was walking on the water. I think we've heard the story too much because when you tell people that, you don't ever hear anybody go like, he was what? Like I grew up on Lake Lanier, okay? So imagine, just to say, imagine you're up there and you're wakeboarding and you go down and you're waiting on the boat to do the little loop around to pick you back up and then you look at the boat beside you and somebody just comes on top of the water. That would be a crazy thing to see, right? Yes, that would be insane. (laughs) And I would be terrified and you would be too. And it says they saw him walking on the water and they, they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. You see, we've all thought that the reason they were afraid was because they were in the storm. Like, we've always thought, well, the wind was buffeting up against the waves, and so they were afraid because of the storm. But do you know that the text doesn't say that? They weren't afraid until they saw a dude walking on the water. The reason why is because there were at least four professional fishermen in that boat. And the lake they normally fished on was that lake. And so they knew at about this time of the day, there might be some storms that had come our way and we know what to do. We're going to move you over to this seat. We're going to move you up to this seat. We're going to move you way back here to this seat. And then we can manage the storm. And it's interesting because when they saw Jesus, they said that's when they got afraid. If you read through all of why would they have been afraid, in the old days they would have believed that evil spirits could possibly live on top of the water. But Jesus, as he's moving towards them, he's going to shape and redefine their picture of who he is through a circumstance that they have no compartment for. Because when you see somebody that does something that you've never seen anybody do before, you don't know how to process it. So you get terrified. And the way that they thought Jesus would have shown up probably is not to do something that has never been done before, which is walking on the water. So when they saw him, they thought, oh, what, 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 what? I have no compartment for somebody walking on top of The water, their fear came when they saw him walking on top of the water because maybe they expected for Jesus to come through in only the ways that they had seen him come through before. And Jesus wanted to expand their view of who he was. So he had to do something he had never done before. This is what it says in chapter, in verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It doesn't say he immediately calmed the storm. It doesn't say they cried out and he calmed the storm, which we know from the couple of verses down that he had the power to do. It says that what he said, what he said is, hey, take courage, it's me. Same words there used as would have been used in Exodus when he came, appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he said, I am. 
So what he wanted them to know in that moment is not, hey, I can calm the storm. What he wanted them to know in that moment is, hey, I'm bigger than the storm, so much so I'll actually come out to you walking on top of it. And so he wasn't just trying to get, he wasn't just trying to solve their problem. He was trying to expand their view of who he was. He wants to expand all of our thinking in regards to who he is. And I think that might be one of the biggest reasons we find ourselves in storms in the first place. You see, a loving father wants to grow the confidence of his children in things that are worth their confidence being grown in. He, he wanted them to have confidence in something that they had never seen before because he was worth them having confidence in him. He wanted to show them something new about himself that nobody had ever seen before. And you don't know that Jesus can calm a storm unless you're in a storm. Unless you've been in the boat and he's calmed the storm, you can't sit on the shore and watch somebody go through a storm and really get the full effect in belief Jesus can come through in the middle of my storm. You get that kind of faith in belief when you yourself are in the boat hanging on for dear life and he calms that boat. He calms the storm that that boat is in. So the only way we can know that Jesus can calm storms I think might be by going through storms ourselves. This is what James chapter one, verses two through four says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then I love Peter, Peter pipes up and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out there to you on the water. If it's you, Jesus, then tell me to come out there to you. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter, you know, I feel, I don't feel bad for Peter. He got to do a lot of cool things that I wish I got to do. But you know, Peter takes a bad rap in this story. Like I think when everybody gets to heaven, everybody's gonna walk by Peter and just like, you know, try to put like the, you know, you know when somebody tries to put their arm around you and you don't really need your arm, you don't really need anybody putting their arm around you, you know, like, hey, it's okay. You're just, you know, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna do better next time. It's like, I know, I, I thought I actually did great. And I think Peter takes such a bad rap in this story. It's like, Peter, you shouldn't have doubted. You have little faith. And I'm like, okay, well, he's one of two people in history that have walked on top of water. So if I'm Peter, I'm like, great, let me see your footprint. What ocean did you walk on? I might have only made it one step, but I don't think you made it any steps. I think he takes a bad rap. All the no, it never says anything about the rest of the disciples. They, you know, could have been laying on the floor for cover, and Peter's at least got some faith trying to walk out there. He takes a bad rap. But I do think we can learn a few simple applications from Peter in this story. The story is not about Peter. It's not about the size of his faith. It's about the size of his God. The story isn't about, you know, we need to have heroic faith. The story is we need to have a hero in which we can put our faith. And that's what's found in this text. 
And so it says, Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? A couple of simple applications I think we can learn from Peter in this text. Louis has said it this way, and I love it. I'll always remember it. He says, let God's faithfulness in the past fuel your confidence in the future. Let God's faithfulness in the past fuel your confidence in the future. You see, because if you turn back to Matthew chapter 8, just six chapters earlier, Jesus had just calmed a storm. He just did that. And now we're six chapters later, and everybody's freaking out again, and he's like, I just did that. And actually, you guys said, remember what y'all said to me? You said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And now here we are six chapters later, and you forgot that already? But I think that's so true of our life. It's interesting in Scripture, the word remember is written in Scripture more than 150 times. And he's always saying, hey, do you remember what I did for you then? You remember what I did for you? You remember how I came through for you this time? You remember how I came through for you this time? You remember when I did that? Remember when you didn't think you were ever gonna be able to make it out of that and then you got out of that? You remember when you thought that thing was gonna kill you but then it didn't kill you? You remember when you thought your marriage was never gonna work out but then now, hello, you're 25 years in? You remember that? And so often we forget it. And I think that that fuels our doubt because we're so we so easily forget how he's come through for us in the past. Let his faithfulness in the past fuel your confidence in the future. Doubt is fueled by distraction. We learn this in this text. Confidence is fueled by concentration. And in our world, there's a lot of distractions, maybe the most distractions there ever have been in history. You can try to do something amazing. You can try to sit down and read your scripture every day. And before you know it, you will have 17 Snapchats, 40 Insta stories that you have to watch. Somebody's texting you. Somebody's calling you. Somebody's emailing you. And and you might have set out with great intentions, but then you get distracted. And I think what we learned from Peter is that our concentration will fuel our confidence. So we have to lock in and we have to say, I'm pushing all these other things to the side. He was looking eye to eye with Jesus and something caused him to turn his head. It is interesting. You know what caused him to turn his head? The thing that he had been in the whole time. And when he turns his head, I think he got a glimpse of, I shouldn't be able to do this. I am walking on water. And that's so true for all of us. Like, like we will start doing something. God will lead us. God will take us out of something that we never thought we were going to come out of. And we start putting one foot in front of the other. And we're like, this is amazing. Nobody's ever done this before. And then we look around. We're like, look at me. And then we look down. We're like, oh, we shouldn't be able to do this. We, we shouldn't be able to sing after we got the divorce papers. We, we shouldn't be able to be generous after we lost our business. 
We shouldn't be able to do this after this. We shouldn't be able to be this kind of person after that thing happened to us. And it makes us get wobbly because we take our eyes off of where Jesus is leading us and we put our eyes onto where he's taking us from. And I think that distractions fuel our doubt. Peter says to him, he says, Lord, save me. And I love it because the word immediately is written three times in this one passage. Jesus didn't let him flop around for a little while like the kid that you saw when you were at vacation last time and his brother and him were in the pool. That was my older brother. I'm still working through that. It's just like, let's, I'll, I won't let him drown, but let me at least watch him flop around for a little while. That's not the kind of God we have. It says that Peter said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus just goes, boom, boom, picks him up. I'm guessing that Jesus wasn't a tennis player. And he didn't play for the 85-pound Falcons. But it's interesting, you know, because Peter couldn't reach Jesus, but Jesus could reach Peter. It's interesting that Peter starts going under and he's crying out for help. And he can't get his arms all the way to Jesus, but Jesus somehow can get his arms all the way to Peter. Because that's the love of a father. That's the love of our God. He's closer than you think he is right now. So what's the story about? It's not about Peter. What's the story about? It's a story not about having heroic faith, but about a hero in which we can put our faith. If we look down at the very end of this story, it says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then here it is, lean into this. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. What began as worry ended as worship. What started with them being in a boat, seeing somebody walking to them on the water, and they were freaking out, ended with them singing to the very person that they were freaking out about. And I think the point of this text is this. Worship is the right response to everything. On the calm waters, on the choppy water, on the shore and in the middle of the sea, the right response to everything is worship. Courage isn't what Jesus was looking for. He, wasn't, he didn't ever say, have some more courage. Except when he was saying, take courage, it's me. He wasn't saying you need to have more courage and your ability to float this thing or your ability to manage this storm. He was saying in that moment, your courage should come from my presence. I'm in the boat now with you. And wherever you are, whatever your storm is in life, this changes everything when you realize that you're not in the boat alone. You're like, no, I got a one-seater boat. No, there are no one-seater boats if you're walking with Jesus. He's in the storm with you, and that changes everything about the storm. Don't let the weather determine your worship. My biggest prayer coming into today was knowing that in a room like this, there's all kinds of different storms. 
There's people coming in here today, and the wind is at your face as hard as it's ever blown in your life. And my hope and my prayer for today was that you would say back to the wind, you would sing a song. You would worship into the face of the wind. And then the next line says this. Truly, you are the son of God. That's the first time in scripture the disciples ever called him by his full title, you are the son of God. And isn't it interesting that it came in such close proximity to the storm? Isn't it interesting? And it came in such close proximity to, I don't even, I don't know who you are to, you are the son of God. I think that's how the storms work. I think that the point of a storm is to get us sometimes to the end of ourself. Because at the end of our story is the beginning of his story. And the best thing any of our, us can do with our story is to fold it and to join into his story. And I love it. The whole, this whole text, this whole idea about the storm doesn't exist so we can have hope that we can walk on water one day or try to get out and you know, run on Lake Lanier later this summer if we have enough faith. That's not the point of this text. It's not don't be like Peter. It's not anything like that. It's this, that you have a storm riding Savior who is not afraid of what you're walking through and who is not intimidated by the boat that you find yourself in. And he will come into whatever storm and he has the power over whatever storm that you're in. And when the storm ceases, you will go, I would have never known that if I didn't go through that. I would have never known that if I didn't go through that storm. The chapter before this, he feeds 5,000 people and the disciples learn that he's a provider. Isn't that amazing? They would have never known that if they weren't there. They would have never been able to understand and comprehend that fully. But the only way to know that God can pull you out of a storm is to go through a storm. And so if you're in one right now, and I'm not taking it lightly. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not de- belittling what you're walking through. Some people are walking through the hardest, trickiest times in life right now. And I think I just want you to hear me say that God is in the boat with you. And at the end of it, you will have a song to sing that you would not have had if you didn't go through what you've been through. So worship where you are. Worship before he calms the sea. You know, these guys were looking at Jesus, and, and for them, this is, a, this is before Jesus went to the cross. This is before he gave his life for the sins of the world. And I don't know, but, you know, when it says they were walking, watching him walk on the water, I can relate to that in my own life. It's like I can, I, I, I can think about times in my life where I thought to myself, I can't see God in this. I know it's hard. I know that he promised he would be with me. I believe, I mean, I believe my trust in him, but man, I'm having a really hard time seeing him in the middle of this. We have an advantage that they didn't have because standing in the middle of history is the cross of Christ. And you can see the cross from anywhere. 
It doesn't matter how foggy it is. It doesn't matter how big the waves are. It doesn't matter. The circumstances don't change the fact that Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world, you included. And that changes how we walk through the most difficult times in life. So my story, you know, I, I had to say goodbye to a dream. that I don't talk about a lot. But I can remember calling, I can remember calling people and saying, what am I supposed to do now? It's all I've ever done. Why would he do this to me? I can remember getting the call from the doctor's office. I can remember calling my parents and just going, nothing, nobody said anything for 10 minutes on the phone. And finally it was just, what do we do now? And the reality of it is my, that storm lasted for a long time. It lasted for years. I wish I could tell you it lasted for weeks, but it lasted for years. It was a process of seeing the identity that I had found in a game be stripped away. It's a process of people calling me, wanting me to be a part of everything, to nobody calling me because I didn't have anything to offer anybody anymore. It's a process of watching all my friends thrive and having to sit on the sidelines. I went back to school, started going to college. A friend of mine invited me to a concert that happened to be passion. Some of you are like, that's how I got here. I thought I was told I was going to a concert. Good job, whoever brought you. <laughs> and I heard Louis talk about the gospel. I heard him talk about Jesus in a way that seemed real to me. And I just thought to myself, maybe he is real. I don't understand why, but maybe he is real. All I know is at this point, there's nothing that I can do about my situation. And so I just started, I started to rekindle an old relationship with him. I started to spend a lot of sleepless nights on my knees beside my bed in college and just go, that's the only thing I thought I could offer this world. I don't know what you have in mind now, but I'm, but I'm done with my dream. And if you have one that you would like me to be a part of, then I'm in. It was a long process. I'll, I'll spare all the details, but last year, it was interesting because I've had the privilege of being on staff here at Passion for a long time, which is a whole nother talk for a whole nother day. But I traveled for a couple of years with our pastor as kind of his navigator, assistant, helping him get around in life. Such a privilege. And last year I saw him Instagram this photo. And that's our pastor and Shelly, as you know. They were at Wimbledon, which I was ticked about because the one trip he didn't need any help was when he went to Wimbledon. And that guy in the middle is Stan Smith. I was traveling with Louis when he posted that after the fact. 
I was sitting in a hotel room and I saw that come on my feed. Stan called me the night of my surgery and I remember saying to him the same thing. I was basically saying to everybody, what am I supposed to do now? And he just said, there's something better ahead. It's 10 years later in life when that photo was posted. A lot of those years were really choppy water storms. And in that moment, I got a glimpse. I got a glimpse. If I would have never stripped you of that dream, you would have never known about that dream. I didn't understand the storm. I'm not celebrating it. It wasn't fun. I hated it. But I am saying that now, 10 years later, I can look at you. I can look at every student who's in our student ministry that I sit down to talk to who's in the middle of a storm. And I can say, I don't know all the details and I don't know the timeline, but I do know this. There will be a day when you will look back and you will say, I would have never known that if I didn't go through that. I wouldn't have known he was that big if I didn't go through that before. And sometimes he has to use, sometimes he has to use the storms to strip us of the lesser things. Sometimes our own dreams have to die so that his dreams can be born. And the only way to do that, the only way to pull us off the shore enough is to send some choppy water. So we'll go, I can't do this. And in that moment, we can rest in the arms of a father who has your best in mind.